Take your Bible, please, and open to the book of Romans, if you would. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Now, tonight I want to speak on a, a subject concerning prayer. Uh, once a month, I've tried to bring a, a message on the subject of prayer, something that would help and um, strengthen you as you um, day by day make your, your prayer requests to the Lord. This is an area where we just don't realize the potential. We don't realize how much power is available to us. And the devil will do anything he can to get us to stop praying. One of the most common tricks of the devil is to get you to think that your prayers don't do any good. That you've prayed for days or weeks or even years and see nothing, give up. And the devil's very good at that tactic. Uh, he doesn't need new tricks because his old ones work so well. And so we have to be on guard and we have to realize that what is truth and what is error. The devil will always tell us error. The Lord will always tell us truth. Sometimes what the devil does is he tries to mix error with truth. And that's no good. We have to look for the truth. And the truth of the matter is that if you're a child of the king, you have the ear of the king. And you can speak to the king. And the king has all of the power and ability to answer your prayers. I want to talk about an incredibly serious secret to powerful praying. I believe with all my heart that prayer can and ought to be a satisfyingly rich and exciting experience for every Christian. So you examine your own prayer life. I hope you have a prayer life. And is it satisfying? Is it rich? Is it exciting? Your opportunity to pray is really, truly like entering the promised land with all its riches freely mine. Yet so few of us actually do it. So few Christians actually really explore the promised land of prayer. Say, why is that? Well, I suppose there's a couple of answers, but one of the answers, a prominent one, I think, is that many Christians are just not aware that there really is a promised land of prayer. They think that uh, they're to make their prayers, uh, now I lay me down to sleep, and uh, Lord, thank you for the food, and Lord, bless the church and the pastor and the missionaries, and that's about it. Doesn't get much better than that. Folks, that is, that is not even the beginning of prayer. Prayer is so much more than that, and it's so rich and vital an experience, and it, it ought to bring you into the closest, most exciting contact with God. Do you remember when you got saved? Can you remember that? Can you remember the day when you prayed to be saved? And did you feel that God heard you? And did you feel close to God at that, that time? Well, that gives you an idea of what your prayer life ought to be. Most of us, we get saved and we have this, oh, this wonderful closeness with God. We've never experienced it before. And then after a few days, a week, a month or something, things have settled down and we say, well, I guess that's that. Now, uh, you know, what have I got to do here? And it's just kind of business as usual. And we've left off the wonder of it all. Your prayer life, your secret prayer life with God ought to be a wonder. If it's not a wonder, then you should wonder why. Because it ought to be something wonderful. Now, I beg you, if what I've described just now about not being aware of a promised land, if that somehow describes your prayer life, 
then beloved, would you by faith begin tonight on a journey, a prayer closet journey and seek the Lord. You see Jeremiah 29, 13 says, and ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. But I believe that we've got folks here tonight who are exploring and who are conquering the promised land of prayer. However, there does come every once in a while, even for them, a time of spiritual drought, and it can feel like a prayer famine. You know what to do, and you've been doing it, and things have been going great, and then for some reason, you're not sure why, all of a sudden it just seems that things have gotten very dry. Why is that? Well... Again, there may be a few answers, but perhaps God is testing our faith. Perhaps God is purposely hiding behind a cloud for just a little while and testing our faith and see what happens. Perhaps it's a means of strengthening our trust and faith in Him. Psalm 37.3 says, Trust in the Lord and do good, so shalt thou dwell in the land. Now for our purposes tonight, that would be the, the promised land of prayer. Don't leave the promised land of prayer. Don't leave the prayer closet. I hope we all understand when I talk about the promised land of prayer, I'm sort of speaking figuratively. When we talk about a prayer closet, we're talking about some little place where you can get alone with God. And that might be in your bedroom. It might be in a little room off to one side. It may even be in a closet. It doesn't have to be a, a grand ballroom or something, just something small where you can get alone with God. Sometimes what I've done with my prayer times with God is um, I'll, I'll get alone with God and I'll pull something even over my head just so that it really feels intimate between me and God and I can whisper and I know that he's hearing me because he's so close and I think that's the concept that uh, scripture is telling us here is to draw close to God Proverbs 2:21 says for the upright shall dwell in the land now for tonight let's make believe that's the land the promised land of prayer and the perfect shall remain in it and so I believe that famine in prayer times is a test of character and faithfulness and trust. If you're going through a time where it just seems like God's not listening to your prayers, then I, I want you to hang in there. I want you to press on a little further. You know, it was a temptation for the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. They had that big victory and they crossed through the Red Sea. Wow, that was a one-time experience. And they got out away from Egypt. They were tempted to flee back there, weren't they? They were tempted to turn tail and just run back to Egypt. But folks, God's will is to press on. It's always that way. Proverbs 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. And so when times of prayer seem a little slow, seem difficult, hang in there and trust God to send the refreshing rains. It won't take very long. The devil try and chase us away and scare us away and discourage our hearts out of the promised land of prayer. But hang in there because it won't take long and God will make the desert to bloom and blossom again for you. Do you remember reading in the Old Testament in Genesis about a, a lady named Hagar? And Hagar had a son. What was his name? Ishmael, that's right. And do you remember at one point Hagar sat ready to die in the desert? Do you remember that? And she was weeping. She was at the end of her rope, thirsty, and agony of soul having to watch her son Ishmael suffer. But what did God do? 
God sent his holy angel and showed her where a fountain of water was. And God will do the same for you and for me. In times when prayer seems like it's not going where it ought to go. Tonight I want to share with you a precious secret of successful prayer. Doesn't matter who you are as long as you're born again Christian. This is a precious secret that I first stumbled upon back in 1988. And um, I didn't realize what I stumbled upon. This is so important. This is so powerful. I didn't understand the full implications of it. I didn't understand the tremendous power connected to it. I stumbled upon it for another purpose, another reason. But it was only about a year and a half ago that I learned how it really applies to the power of prayer. And when I learned that, I said, I want that. I want that with all my heart, I want that. You know, it's interesting, as I sat there listening to Angelique sing, he was there all the time. This tremendous truth was there all the time. I just didn't see it. Until about a year and a half ago. And I can say this, that in the last year and a half, it's made my experience with God better than anything I could ever think imaginable. And so we're going to talk tonight about an incredibly serious secret to the powerful, powerful prayer. Let's begin with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we bow humbly in your presence and we thank you, Lord, that you're a prayer answering God. We thank you, Father, the longer we live, the longer we walk with you, talk with you, and learn of you, the more we realize, oh, the great things that you want to do through us, your people. Father, give us faith to overcome Satan's lies. He's taken years to build certain lies into our hearts concerning prayer. Oh, Father, give us faith to overcome those lies and to, to believe the truth. Jesus himself said the truth shall make you free. We want to be free tonight to be able to be used of God, every one of us. Our Father, bless now as we examine this precious secret. Please make it real. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I call this the incredibly serious secret to powerful prayer because that's exactly what it is. Now, it's not something that every single one of us will fully grasp right away. As I said, I, I first stumbled upon it back in 88, 1988, but I didn't understand what I'd stumbled upon. There may be even someone here tonight or a few people who will understand this somewhat, but they decide they don't want it. And the reason they may not want it is because it's not free. And it doesn't come cheap. Now, let me tell you a little bit of history. For thousands of years, when a young man found the girl of his dreams and wanted to marry her and live with her and build a life together and have children and grandchildren and grow old together. It didn't come free and it didn't come cheap. That young man often had to pay what was called a bride price. In parts of the world, that still goes on today. When a young man wants to marry the girl of his dreams, he has to come up with a bride price that is paid to the parents of the, of the bride. 
Now, if the young man has no money, which a lot of young guys don't, then he would have to perhaps satisfy some requirements that uh, the bride's father would set down. Sometimes that would take years. I'll give you a good example of this. His name is Jacob. And Jacob finally met the girl of his dreams. What was her name? Rachel, right. And she was beautiful, and he fell in love with her. He was smitten. That's what happens. Guys get smitten. <laughs> I don't know if that's what smiting sounds like, but in my head, I, it's what I imagine when a guy meets the girl of his dreams. It's just like a pow. And uh, Jacob got hit. Oh, he got hit bad. There was Rachel, the girl of his dreams. But remember, he kind of took off from home and he had no money. What was Rachel's father's name? Hmm? Laban, right. And Laban, he, he had an eye for a deal or a nose for a deal or something. <clears throat> if you know the story, Jacob ended up having to throw in sweat equity. He had to work for uh, several years to be able to marry Rachel. How many years in total? Anyone know? 14 years. Imagine that. 14 years before he could marry her. Wow. Laban profited, I know. But for Jacob, you know, it just seemed like it flew by for the love he had for her. So that was the bride price he had to pay. I'll give you another example. Young King David, before he was king, he had smitten Goliath. That's a different kind of smiting. And so <clears throat> uh, King Saul had a daughter named Michael. And uh, so uh, he kind of offered his daughter, David was smitten. <clears throat> That's the first kind of smiting. And so uh, the father, King Saul, was afraid of David and wanted David killed. And so he actually was working against David. And he said to David, you can have my daughter, but the bride price is a, a hundred Philistines. Go and kill me a hundred Philistines. Now, you'd have to read the story to get, you know, the exact wording on that, okay? But David had to go and kill 100 Philistines. And so what David did was he went and he killed 200 Philistines. <laughs> that did not make Saul very happy. But he had to give his, his daughter the, the bargain, right? The price had been met. But there's an example there, two examples, in fact, of the bride price. Now, as you already know, Jesus Christ has been given all the power that there is in all heaven and all earth. He has all the power, every last bit of power he owns. Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Listen to this. Christ's power can accomplish absolutely anything on earth. There is nothing his power cannot accomplish. He is so powerful and so strong. Now that alone makes Jesus very desirable to have close to us. You follow so far? He truly is a pearl of great price. Now supposing you or I went to the Heavenly Father and we were to ask the Heavenly Father for Jesus to come and abide richly in us and for the freedom for Jesus to use any and all of his power to, to uh, in us and through us for the rest of our life. 
Now, let's suppose the Heavenly Father replied and said something like, well, that's asking a lot of me. You're asking of me, my son, and all of his power. Tell me, what sort of payment do you intend to make? Ah. Now, what could we possibly give or pay that the Heavenly Father would want and accept? What kind of payment? Christ has all the power there is. You're wanting power in your prayers. I know who can give you that power. His name is Jesus. You go to the Father and you say, Father, I understand this now, that Jesus has everything there is. He's got all the power and the wisdom too, by the way. Father, I want Jesus to dwell in me richly and I want him to use his power in me and through me for the rest of my life on earth. How about it, Father? Would you do it? And the Father says, wow, that's an incredibly big thing you've asked of me. What do you have in mind? What, what can you give me? What, what kind of payment can you make for, for this? That's really big. That's something huge. So how do you intend on paying for it? That's a good question. What in the world could we possibly give the Heavenly Father? Can we offer the Father our future mansion in heaven? Well, Father, tell you what. You give me Jesus, I'll give you my mansion in heaven. Well, there's a problem with that. The first big problem is we, we're not in heaven yet. We don't own any mansion yet. Yeah, future, it's coming, but it's not here yet. We don't have it to give. Can we go to the Father and say, Father, in exchange for Jesus, I'll give you my future harp and my future crown and my future robe of white. How about that? Uh, no. Why? Well, go to the bank on earth and see if they'll loan you any money or give you money based upon something in the future. It's not going to work. They want something right here and right now. And so you and I have to re-examine this. God says, you want my son? You want his power? You want his influence and the wisdom and everything that he has? You want that? Well, tell me, what are you going to pay for that? What could we possibly offer the Heavenly Father that he would want and that he would accept in exchange for Christ and his power and his wisdom? Well, maybe we can get a clue from what the Heavenly Father has already given to you and to me. Now, with your Bible open at Romans chapter 8, I'd like you to look at one verse, and I'd like you to read it out loud with me, please. It's verse number 32. So get your glasses on. Romans 8, 32. Read it together out loud with me now. He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And so notice here, the Father gave us the Son, and what else did the Father give us? Two words, what are they? All things. In other words, he gave us everything. He gave us everything. Really is what he's done. He's given us everything. Now that's a clue. What can we give the Heavenly Father that He would want and accept? What can we give back to the Father? A clue here 
is the word everything. And I suggest to you tonight that we can give him our worship and our wellness and our wealth. And I think that's everything. Now we're going to go through that tonight in our remaining time. If you're a note taker, write down this. Point number one. We can give him our worship. Our worship. Now I'm talking tonight about going to the Heavenly Father and saying, Father, I really want Christ and his power. I really want him. I, with all my heart, I want him. That power and that wisdom. I love Jesus and I want his power in me to flow in me and through me. Lord, I, I want it for the rest of my days on earth. And the Father says, well, what can you give me in exchange? Well, number one, Number one is I can give you my worship. Now, I'm going to give you these three items and I'm going to label them creature comforts. So this is sub, you know, little sub point here or a subtitle. It's creature comfort number one. Creature comfort number one. Uh, write down 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. And turn there now, would you please? 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 15 and 16. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. We can give him our worship. Now, I'd like you to read out loud with me, please, these two verses, 15 and 16, 1 Peter chapter 1. Read it out loud with me. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Now, I suggest to you that a life of holiness is what's really going to matter with God. You want to offer God something that he wants and he will accept is a life of holiness. That means we have to be brutal with sin. We can't mollycoddle bad habits and sin and make excuses for them. The Bible says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. The Bible says we must make no provision for the flesh. So anything that you know to be sin or not right with God, you need to get that out. Cut it off, destroy it, flush it, burn it. Don't sell it. Don't sell your sin to someone else. A very poor example is Canada is legalizing marijuana. Supposing someone had a bunch of marijuana and one of those smoke pipes and things, and they thought, no, this isn't right, it's sin. I'll put it on Craigslist and sell it. Don't sell your sin to someone else. If you have a bunch of um, stolen, pirated DVDs and CDs, don't sell them on Craigslist. Don't do that. Don't sell your sin to someone else. Destroy those things. You know, if you can't break them, we have a machine here that'll mulch them, scrunch them all up. Oh, yeah. If you've got old credit cards that you want destroyed, bring them to church. We'll put them through the, the gobbledy machine there and it just it shreds them to shreds. <laughs> it's a goodie. We have to be constantly judging sin. This morning we had a communion service. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read the words, for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. 
That means that every day we've got to be judge, jury, and executioner, and we've got to be very, very diligent to live short, like have short accounts with sin. If, if sin creeps in, confess it and cut it off. If you've gone and bought something that's making you commit sin, you've got to get rid of it, destroy it, burn it, rip it, you know, bury it, do something, destroy it, get rid of it. We need to offer him worship and a life of holiness. Worship means it's no good if it's not backed with a life of holiness. It used to be that money, our currency, was backed by gold. Well, gold hasn't been the standard behind our money now for I don't know how many years. They used to say in, in the States, all the gold was kept in Fort Knox and it was illegal for Americans to own gold. Well, they changed all those laws. Americans can own gold. But gold is not backing the American currency anymore. All that's backing the American currency is the word of the government. Basically, the goodwill. That's it. There is no precious metal. There's nothing behind it. Well, what kind of promissory notes do we make God? It has to be backed by a life of holiness. If you're going to worship God, you have to live a holy life. The Bible says, worship the Lord in the beauty of what? Holiness. Holiness. Now, that means we got to judge sin. That's what this altar is for. That's part of what your prayer closet is for. In your heart, you have to be brutally honest with right and wrong. If you're doing things you shouldn't do, no one else knows about it, I'll tell you someone who does know about it. And then when we go to him with worship, God can't hear it, he can't see it because of all the sin that's clouded the issue. So we have to deal with the sin. So you see, this is a creature comfort we're talking about. The Bible says that there's pleasure in sin, but then it goes on to say what? For a season, for only a season, because sin brings guilt. James was very brutal with sin, and he said, you know, do not err, my beloved brethren. <laughs> he said, sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Very, very serious. Sin is not a game. Sin is serious, serious devil's business. And we need to separate ourselves from that. And so when we're talking about what can we offer God to get in exchange? The power of Christ, Christ himself and his wisdom and his, his presence with us. I think it begins right here. I think it begins with offering him our worship. And that's going to crowd out some of these creature comforts, so-called. We're going to have to have, have short accounts with sin and deal with sin in our lives. But it also means not just a life of holiness, but it means a life of prayer. Now, this is the holy grail. This is what we're after, folks. We want to be able to go into our prayer closet and meet with Jesus. That's what we want. We want to have a recreation of that initial experience when we got saved and, and the glory of God dawned in our souls for the first time and you know, we jumped up and down. Hallelujah! I found him! That's what we want in our prayer closets, to meet with God and listen to the still small voice of God as the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. Well, I tell you something. It's one thing to learn a truth at church and it's something else to have the Holy Spirit show you a truth in your prayer closet and open up the scriptures to you like fountains of living water. 
And that experience can be yours. That can be mine. I want that with all my heart, all my soul, all my being. I want that. I don't want to go in and spend uh, an hour of useless time. So I was a dud. I went to the store with my wife uh, yesterday in late afternoon. And we were there for over an hour thinking that we were going to buy something that was going to be a, a help and a benefit. And it was, it was just a big waste of our time. We were disappointed, disillusioned, and uh, we, we came back home empty-handed. And we looked at the watch and we said, well, that was an hour wasted. Man, I don't want to say that coming out of the prayer closet. If we're going to offer God something that he wants and something that he'll accept in exchange for Christ and Christ's mighty power, it begins here with worship, with a life of holiness and with a life of prayer. Folks, you're going to have to sacrifice the time. Just like you would take the time and go to a ball game, you'd take the time and sit and watch a movie or something, you're going to need to take the time and go in the prayer closet. And I want to suggest to you that you set aside a half hour every morning. Now, I know for someone here, uh, uh, they just had papatubophobia. So half hour? Pa, what? what, what, what did, did I hear that right? You heard right. A half hour. 30 minutes. 30 minutes. Man, I have trouble praying 30 seconds. How can I pray 30 minutes? Well, I'll give you a little formula. You can call it the 5-10-15, or you can call it the 10-10-10. But what you do is you get yourself a book on prayer a good book on prayer, not something written by Pope Francis. You want something written by a man who really knows how to pray. And there's a lot of them. What you do is you spend the first five minutes reading the first page or two pages or a chapter of a book on prayer. And then you take the next 10 minutes and you read scripture. I suggest that you read in the Psalms and Proverbs and read scripture. I like to read scripture with a notepad and a pen. Write down things that I feel the Lord is showing me. Five minutes with a book on prayer. Ten minutes with the Bible. Now that's so far, that's 15 minutes. That's half your time in the prayer closet. And now you get on your knees or you get on your face. And you begin to pray. Say, where do I start in prayer? You start with repentance. You start by admitting to God how lousy you are at prayer how unfaithful you are with the prayer closet, how your life has, has brought him more shame than it has brought him glory. The Holy Spirit will guide you in prayer. Confession is good for the soul. And repentance, oh, I'm telling you, that's, that's the key. Don't just think you can barge right in and just rattle off requests. Only a fool would do that. You go before any uh, potentate on earth and you come in with a bowed knee in reverence. You come to some great, great person to ask requests. You don't barge in. You go to, the, the, to God. This prayer closet becomes your holy of holies, folks. And you will find that 15 minutes really is not enough time. But we're going to start with 15 minutes. And, and you will find that five minutes, bang, is going to go by fast. You'll confess your sin before God. And then you begin praying for your family and your loved ones. Maybe your mom and dad, son and daughter, husband or wife, sister or brother. You begin to beg God for the souls of lost men and women. You'll find that the, you know, the clock will go ding or something and your time is up. 
You've done 30 minutes in your prayer closet. You start getting a few of those in a row and you'll know what victory is all about. You try that for two weeks. I'm telling you, it's going to change you from top to bottom. This is the Holy Grail. This is what we're after. But going into a little prayer closet with wrong attitudes and wrong thinking, and it's just a waste of your time. You've got to do it right. And so we're talking about worship. The very first primary thing that you can offer God in exchange for Christ and his wonderful power in your life to be able to pray and to see answers to those prayers and to be able to influence people around you so that others see Jesus in you. Wow, you can have it, but it doesn't come free and it doesn't come cheap, but you can have it. You have to give God something. Give him worship, a life of holiness, a life of prayer, but a life of praise and thanksgiving. This is all part of worship. Praise and thanksgiving to God. If you got a raise at work, or if that uh, uh, handsome guy proposes to the young girl and she's got something to praise the Lord about and he's got something to praise the Lord about, that's great. Praise the Lord, give thanks. But you don't forget, you also give praise and thanks to God in the hard times, the dark days, the valleys, as well as the mountaintops. When your boss calls you in and says, well, we won't be needing you after today. You what? But, 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 but. You give praise and you give glory to God. Boy, that does a lot. Man, that drives the devil crazy. When you give praise and thanksgiving to God during tough times and suffering, because you will be called upon to suffer. Oh, all you got to do is read the Bible. Through good times and bad times, a life of praise and thanksgiving. So this first point, we're done now. We're going to move on to the second point. But this first point, we, we can give him our worship. That's creature comfort number one. All right, point number two. Point number two is we can give him our wellness. Our wellness. Our wellness. That's creature comfort part two. For this, I'd like you to turn back to 2 Corinthians in chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Second Corinthians chapter 12. We can give him our wellness. Now, in chapter 12, we have the testimony of the Apostle Paul. And I'll begin at verse 7. And follow along as I read this. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. 
Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Wow. I suggest to you, too many people in the world, all they care about is their own skin. See, how do you figure that? Well, I got that from Satan. Satan told me that in the book of Job, chapter 2. Satan went before God because Satan couldn't, couldn't get Job to curse God because of all the financial losses he had and the loss of his children. And he lost just about everything he had. Satan prophesied that if that happens, Job will curse God. There's a lot of people that would have cursed God. Oh, why does this always happen to me? God must hate me. Oh, I lost this, I lost that. Oh, well, well. And there's a lot of people in the world like that. There may even be a few Christian people that might accuse God should they lose something. So Satan goes back to God and he says, yea, skin for skin. Man will give everything for his life. He says, let me at him. God says, okay, he's in your hand, but spare his life. And oh, that poor Job, you know, he went through physical suffering. Some kind of physical plague, some kind of boils on his skin that erupted that were so bad and painful and sore and pussy and everything. And it was from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. It was on his whole body. He was the most ugly looking thing to look at. I don't even think his wife could stand to be near him. There's a man who knew something about physical suffering. And so, if we're going to give God something that he would accept, I suggest that we can give him, number two here is our wellness. I can give him my body. Now, can you think of a verse of Scripture that encourages us to give our bodies to God? Romans 12. Yep. Romans 12 comes right out. It doesn't get plainer than that. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies. Have you done that? Maybe you did it a long time ago, and it's time to do it again. You see, if you want to get Christ and his power and his influence and his wisdom, what are you going to give in exchange? Well, number one will be a life of worship. You can give him your worship. If you don't give him your worship, don't bother with any, anything else. You give him your worship and you'll find that point number two is not that hard to do. God, I want to give you my body. This is something, as I say, I learned this back in 1988. I stumbled upon it. I shouldn't have learned it, but I did. And I was in a situation where I was needing something from God and I, I was so serious and I, I spent six hours in prayer with God and during that time I was asking God to fix a problem that was just breaking my heart and it's like God was saying okay you want me to do that what are you willing to give in exchange and this is how I learned of this principle 
but I never fully clued into the power of this. And over the period of those six hours I spent with God in prayer, pacing back and forth and reading scripture and on my knees and on my face and literally crawling, it's like the Holy Spirit said, okay, that's good. What else? What else can you give? And I gave my body again. I can give my body. I can give my body. Listen, I'll take care of the body, God. I'll be like the, uh, the gardener. I'll be like the steward. I'll be like the, um, the caretaker of the body. But it belongs to you, God. You have the ownership papers on my body. I'll just take good care of it. But, God, it belongs to you. And if you wanted to go through something, if you wanted to experience something, then that's your decision. I'll do the best I can to take care of it. I can give my body to him. I can give, listen to this, my health to him. Well, obviously, the, the big thing about health is whether you, whether you have life or not. If you don't have life, then you guess you don't have health. So let's talk about life and death. If I can give him my body, I can give him my life, I can give him my death. There are many Christians who pray about their death. They pray about their life, that their life can bring glory to God, but they pray about their death as well. Because unless the Lord comes in the rapture, we're all going to die. You know that. Unless he comes and the, the trumpet sounds and away we go, we are going to die. Now, how are you going to die? Are you going to die in a worldly way? Are you going to die in a way that will bring the most honor and glory to God? And a lot of people, a lot of Christians think about this and they think about their, their death and they pray that they'll be able to die in such a way that'll bring the most glory to God. And that can be done uh, many ways, including a funeral service, including the, uh, the assets and what's left behind. One of the worst things you can do is die with no will because uh, it, it turns into a, a barroom brawl. And the nicest of families can be torn asunder if there's no will. Anyhow, I'm not here to talk about that, but I'm to talk about this. Life or death, how about sickness or health? We all love life, but we don't care for death. We all love health, but we don't care for sickness. I'll have you know something. Some of your most intimate times with God won't be when you're in the pink of health. It'll be in the valley. It'll be when you're feeling sick. It's then that you're able to have some of your greatest experiences with God. Just ask the Apostle Paul. He says, therefore, uh, I ra will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And he takes pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities. For me lately, it's been a bad back. But by the way, have you noticed no cane? Have you noticed that? I can get into bed and out of bed without a cane now. Now, that's, that's big news for me. All you got to do is talk to my wife off to one side and say, tell us the truth. What was it really like? And she'll tell you, oh, it was so painful for me to watch my husband have to get into bed and get out of bed. It was the worst. Boy, it was. It was bad pain. But what was I doing? I was praying, Lord, have thine own way. Have thine own way. You see, we go through things and they're tests sometimes. But listen, something I learned years ago when my back went really bad is that God started blessing the church. 
And when I realized that, I said, okay, God, I will live for the rest of my life with this miserable, rotten back pain, excruciating pain, if you'll just keep blessing your church. And God kept blessing the church, then it leveled off. And after, God healed my back. And so here it is happening again. Lord, for the rest of my life, if you want me to be in a wheelchair or use a cane, Lord, that's your decision. I've given you my body. You just keep fulfilling your perfect will. Have thine own way, Lord, in us and through us. And God's blessing, now he's starting to heal my back. Hey, what can I say except thank you, Lord? Isn't that something? And I didn't have to go to Benny Hinn either. Interesting. You want to give something to God that God will accept and in exchange grant you power in prayer like you never knew. Well, you can do it. But it's not free. It's not cheap. Number one, you can give him your worship. Number two, you can give him your wellness. And number three is you can give him your wealth. And I'm not just talking about money. You can give him your wealth. And this is creature comfort, not part three. For this, I'd like you to turn to the right a few pages only to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter three. Some of us didn't know that there's a, a, a monetary system in heaven. Some of us didn't know that there's a currency in heaven that's acceptable to God. If a man from a foreign country came here with foreign-looking money and he went into a store and tried to pay for something with foreign-looking money, the store owner, the store clerk may say, no, I'm sorry, that, that's no good here. We don't accept that. We can't do business. Oh, what must I do? You have to go to an exchange outfit or a bank or someplace and exchange that currency into what we use here in this country. Um, when we went to the Philippines, we found that American dollars really went a long way. Boy, we found stores that when they saw American dollars, man, they, they liked that. So actually, I tell you what, Canada's one of those countries. <laughs> we see American dollars. Boy, that's worth twice a Canadian dollar, it seems. We like American dollars. Times are getting tough for the economy here in Canada. And we need to fasten our seatbelt. And we need to stay close to the Lord. But if you want to give God something that he will accept, it's give him your wealth. Now, in Philippians chapter 3... I'd like you please to look at verse 8. I'm going to have you read this out loud. Philippians 3, 8. Read it out loud. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Now you know what dung is. Did you know that there's a, a legitimate, useful purpose for dung? Did you know that? It's not just something you want nothing to do with, although a lot of it is. But there's a useful place for dung. And uh, there's many places in the world that still use dung. And one of the first places they use dung is uh, as fertilizer out in the farmer's field. They still use dung. That's valuable. 
Dung has value. It's used to help grow a crop. It's not something you want to fill your pockets full of and take home. No. Who in the right mind would do that? You, you want to put dung out in the field to help you grow a crop. And Paul was saying that the things of this world, we'll call it wealth, are like dung. And you can use it to help grow spiritual riches and spiritual blessing. If you want to offer God something that he will accept, offer him your wealth. And I'm not talking just about money. Number one, of course, is money. If you're not tithing, if you're not supporting missions by faith promise, then you haven't begun to give. Some people think, well, they put a nickel in the offering plate there. That'll keep God satisfied. And yet they go to McDonald's and they'll spend $20. They'll go to a nice restaurant and they'll spend $80 and they won't think anything of it. And yet for God, five cents. Oh, for the missionaries, 10 cents. You know, God's not stupid. God can see what's going on. We need to really get serious if we want God to get serious back with us. And tithing, that's 10% of your income. Some Christians say, oh, is that 10% before tax or 10% after tax? Well, that's a, a nice question. And here's a nice answer. Who is your first creditor? God or the government? That should answer it. Um, you can give your money, but you're not only rich in money. Listen to me, my friend. You're rich in family. Family is like wealth. You can give to God your parents, your siblings, your husband, your wife, your children. Back in 1988, when God seemed to say, okay, well, what else can you give me? There were seven things that I gave him. And the very last one, I was weeping. I was crying. My heart was broken because I gave God my wife and my children. And I said, God, I know that some pastors have been called upon to suffer the loss of their wife and their children. And Father, that would break my heart. I don't know what I would do, but I put them into your hands. And if you want them, Father, if you really want them in heaven, you take them. But Lord, if you leave them with me, I'll take real good care of them. And that's how I prayed. And you know what? So far, God's left them with me. So I'm trying to take real good care of them. But what happens tomorrow should God take a loved one? Now, for a lot of people on earth, they shake their fist toward heaven. They curse God. Even some Christians, they can't understand why God would do that to them. And they're upset. They're mad with God. If you want to give God something that he'll accept, put your family in his hands. Something else I've learned about putting your family in God's hands is that's the best place you can put them. Because until you put your loved ones into God's hands, the devil's got a way to get in there and make you scared. The devil's got something he can use to hold you back. But when you put your loved ones, your family, your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, maybe it's an aunt or uncle or grandparent, 
Maybe it's a close friend, a bosom buddy, and you put these people in the hands of Almighty God and say, God, if you want them, they're yours. But if you leave them with me, I'll, I'll take good care of them. And you, you put them into God's hands. That's something God will accept. And in return, he will grant you what you're looking for. But you're not only rich in money and family, but you are rich in friends. And this may sound funny because I've just covered that, but what I'm talking about is the lack of friends. Some people say, I have no friends. I have no friends. No one wants to be my friend. You give that to God. You give your lack of friends to God. Now that may even come down to a husband or wife. A young lady says, I, I, I got no man in my life. I, I got no, no guy that's interested in me. They're interested in my girlfriends, but they're not interested in me. A young man may say, I, I've got no girl in my life. Uh, girls are interested in other guys, but they never show interest in me. I, I'm going to be an old geezer. I'm going to die single. Oh, the shame of it crazy how the devil puts thoughts in our heads isn't it most of us married guys had those fears didn't we w many of us anyhow we thought oh that's it for me boy no one wants me a lot of people have that fear but I tell you what you do you put that into God's hands God if you want me to be single then I'll serve you but if it's okay if I could be married I'll take real good care of them Lord and I'll serve you together. You see, you put your lack of friends into God's hands. Not only are you wealthy with money and family and friends, but you're wealthy in reputation. You have a decent reputation. Well, what if people started thinking wrong thoughts about you and saying wrong things about you and your reputation got smeared? Could you live with that? There are people in the news who've been committing suicide because they've been accused of atrocities that they said they didn't do, and so they killed themselves. Your reputation, you need to put that into God's hands. The people at work, at school, in the community, that pe people everywhere, you put your reputation in his hands. You're not only wealthy with money and family and friends and reputation, but you're also believe it or not, wealthy with persecutions or lack thereof. If you want to worship God, I'm sorry, if you want to give God something that he will accept, you give him your wealth. And this has to include your persecutions, persecutions by the devil, persecutions by unsaved people. Lord, if you want me to suffer the slings and arrows from other people, I'll do that, Lord. Look what Paul went through. And finally, under your wealth is your ministry. Lord, whatever you want me to do, however you want me to serve you, Lord, you're, you're wealthy there, folks. If you want to be able to offer to God something that he'll accept in exchange for giving to you the power of Christ, your worship, your wellness, and your wealth. Folks, listen, that's all the currency we have. That's it. We, we're not holding anything back. That's all we've got. And that's exactly what it costs to get Christ and his power. And this is the incredibly serious secret I'm talking about. You can have the great power of Jesus Christ in you and through you, but it's going to cost you something. And the cost is going to be everything you've got. And we can... 
we can do that. And I say, let him have it all. If you ask me what I want to do, I want to give it all to him. I want to give everything to him. If he will come to me with his holy presence and his power divine and dwell richly in me and accomplish the Father's perfect will in me here on earth, he can have it all. Sunday, March 12th, 2017, a year and a half ago. It was a Sunday morning at six in the morning. I was in the prayer closet and it all came together. And I asked the Father, <laughs> the way I worded it is I asked the Father to sell me Jesus in exchange for everything I have. And my prayer life changed. And I had a pretty good prayer life up to that point, but boy, did that take me deep into the prayer closet. Oh, man, that'll turbocharge you. It can't help but. Fifteen years ago in 2003, Christian singers Roger and Deborah Talley and their daughter Lauren wrote a song called His Life for Mine. Maybe you've heard it. The words go, His heart was broken, mine was mended. He became sin, now I am clean. The cross he carried bore my burden. The nails that held him set me free. And then the chorus, his life for mine. His life for mine, how could it ever be that he would die, God's son would die, to save a wretch like me? What love divine he gave his life for mine. Now what I want to suggest is that you and I rewrite that song. You and I rewrite that song before God in prayer tonight. And instead of singing his life for mine, let's change those words. My life for his. Does that make sense? Because if you're going to go to God and say, God, I really, really want Christ and his power and his wisdom and his presence and his fullness. I really, really want that. And God says, you've asked quite a bit from me. What are you prepared to pay And you can sing my life for his. My worship, my wellness, and my wealth. You can have it all, Lord. This is the incredibly serious secret to powerful prayer. Does that make sense? Let's stand to our feet.